Let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Father, we thank you so much for your word, which records you and your character, your revelation of yourself to mankind. We thank you that at long last in these passages we see uh, the, the promised result of your faithfulness. We know that based on this circumstance and based on so many others, that we can trust you implicitly, that we can trust you for all things and for everything. We praise you that your promises are sure and that you will always bring them to pass. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. We have in the passage this morning, not just the anticipated result of probably the last six months of our sermon series, but also really the last two years since we began Genesis. Uh, we'll see that more as we go along here, but there is a near fulfillment of a prophecy in here that has an ultimate fulfillment in Christ himself. Uh, we are looking this morning at the arrival of Isaac, the promised seed to Abraham and Sarah, the one who will bring them joy, the one who is the birth of the nation of Israel through whom God will bring the Messiah. So that we are knowing where the focus will be this morning, we'll start with the main point and then we'll end with it as well. At long last, the promised seed is born. This is not the ultimate fulfillment, that will be Christ, but the near fulfillment of the seed prophecy of Genesis 3. Isaac was the result of God's intervention and miraculous conception of a child, through which he created Israel out of nothing as his firstborn son. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this promise when he stands for Israel as God's firstborn or unique son. And Isaac prefigures Jesus as the firstborn son who brings joy or who restores that joy of fellowship and God's presence. And so we begin with the promise, the promise that had been given to Abraham and Sarah now finds its fulfillment. And we are told of this fulfillment uh, by a very unique and interesting idiom that is used in the Hebrew Bible quite frequently. It says, the Lord took note of Sarah. This is not quite the same as the Lord remembering Abraham, uh, but this is a special uh, consideration for Sarah. At its core, this word, pakad, means to inspect carefully or examine thoroughly. It is something for which you are greatly concerned. God is demonstrating his great concern for Sarah, but especially when it comes to his own promises to her. Here it means that God visited Sarah, just as he had said he would. This is an answer to his promise then, and we are led to understand from this unique phrase uh, that his visitation is more than just a return visit, but an intervention in her reproductive capability. This is not an immaculate conception. Like the conception of Christ, there is a man involved. Abraham and Sarah are both the producers of, uh, of this child, Isaac, but only by the intervention of God who gave life to the deadened womb of Sarah. So God has taken note here of Sarah. He has visited her, just as he said in Genesis 18, 14, says, at the appointed time, I will return to you. 
at this time next year and Sarah will have a son. When we move forward in Genesis, we use this, we see this term used again, this pakad, uh, in the life of Joseph, uh, the great grandchild of uh, Sarah and Abraham. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from the land to which he had, to which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Joseph is referencing here the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 15, when God had told Abraham that he is going to send his descendants into a land which is not their own, and they'll be oppressed for 400 years. Joseph, upon his deathbed, is telling them, God is going to take care of you. God will visit you. God will intervene miraculously for you. He continues, Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. In Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, when we see God beginning his intervention with Israel, this is what he says, or this is what uh, Moses writes, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. This is uh, a principle that God uses in judgment called lex talionis, or uh, the law of retribution. Egypt, Egypt has taken and persecuted God's firstborn son, his firstborn among the nations. The one which was his own unique uh, unique nation among the nations of the world and the one through whom his own son would come. And so he has a special consideration for this nation over all the others. And when Egypt acts to oppress this nation, God steps in to deliver back to them the same consequences. They have taken his firstborn son captive and they have oppressed them and uh, abused them. And God is going to do the same to Egypt's firstborn sons. Moving on about eight verses, Moses writes, So the people believed. This was the message which Moses had delivered to Israel, Israel who had been 400 years in the land of Egypt, and many of them had fallen out of faith in the one true God of Israel. But when Moses came and preached to them, they turned and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned, or the Lord visited them, about the sons of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshipped. Back in Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, we see why God was concerned for Israel in Egypt. It says, So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice, or he knew of them. God remembered the promises that he had made to Abraham and therefore he was faithful. Therefore he took special consideration because he had made an oath to this nation. Just as God had made an oath to Noah that he would carry him through the flood and when he brought him to the other side, he would deliver to him a covenant. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth 
and the water subsided. In Ruth, chapter 1, verse 6, we see that God once again visits his people, and we see it from an outsider's perspective. Uh, it says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that's Naomi, and her daughters-in-law, one of which is Ruth, and the other, I believe, is Orpah. Then she might return from the land of Moab. They were living in the land of Moab across the Jordan River from Israel. She had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. This phrase at the end explains what it means that God visited them. It doesn't just mean that he came and looked around. It means that when he came, he acted. When he visited them, he gave them food to eat. While there is famine in all the other parts of the land, God in his visitation provided for his children, provided for Israel. And in Jeremiah 29, looking forward into the Babylonian captivity, we read, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you, to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. This goes back again to the Abrahamic covenant, a covenant unique to the Jewish people, unique to the physical and spiritual blessings to Israel. And God has promised that he will take care of them. He has promised that he will give them this land. He has promised that he will give them an eternal descendant on the throne of this earth, in the throne of David in Jerusalem. And so, in order to be good uh, to fulfill my good word to you, says God, he will visit them. He will take them into special consideration. Now, more in line with the exact passage we're looking at this morning, where God visits Sarah, takes special consideration of her and the promise that he's made for her in bringing provision for her. We see another woman who God visited in the same way in 1 Samuel 2.21 says, Then the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. You see, Hannah was unable to conceive a child, and uh, her husband's other wife, who was a younger wife, had borne multiple children. And so Hannah prayed to the Lord that she would bear at least one child. And she promised that upon that child's birth that she would dedicate him to the service of the Lord. And Hannah was faithful to do that. When she gave birth to Samuel, she brought him to Eli in the tabernacle, and he began serving the Lord in the tabernacle. And then Eli prayed for Hannah that she would, uh, that she would have more children because of her faithfulness to God in delivering up Samuel. And God visited Hannah. God provided for that prayer that Eli had prayed on her behalf. Ultimately, though, this visitation of God looks forward to the ultimate fulfillment of his promise of restoration. And we see this in Luke 167, when once again God has visited an elderly couple well beyond the age of natural reproduction. 
He has given them a special child, one who would be the forerunner of the promised Messiah. This was John and his parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth. And when uh, it was, or when this child was born, uh, Luke 167 reads, his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. This restoration or this purchasing from darkness in this world, this purchasing from the separation that mankind has with God, God has visited us, Zechariah says. Now, he has just uh, experienced the conception and birth of his own son, but he begins by praising God for the birth of a different son, the birth of the one whom John precedes, because uh, Elizabeth, her niece, is also pregnant with a child. And that child was, directly by the hand of God, in an immaculate conception, uh, conceived and presented to Israel as the salvation of Israel and the Savior of the world. And so when Zachariah, Zacharias praises God for his son, he recognizes the purpose his own son was born, to precede this one who has visited us in an accomplishment of redemption for his people. It says he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to Abraham our father to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him in all our days. Now we, as 21st century believers who are part of the church and not part of Israel, would have a different flavor of praise on this. So we praise God for all that he has done for Israel. Notice the physical and uh, earthly nature of this praise as well. While he praises him for salvation, he is also praising him for salvation from physical enemies that surround Zacharias realizes that this Messiah who is to come is not only the Savior of the entire world, but specifically the Savior of Israel and the Redeemer of God's covenants with Israel. As he has promised him, he has come to be the king and the ruler, the rescuer of Israel from all of their enemies, so that God will be faithful to every bit of his word to Israel. He continues then, or the rest of Zacharias's statements will be about his son, John. But we look forward into Luke 19, 18 chapters later, and we see what Jesus Christ himself says after they rejected him in his coming. It says, when he approached Jerusalem, this is at the triumphal entry, after they have rejected the kingdom that he came offering, rejected the safety that he had offered them, um, in Matthew 23, 37 and 30, through 39, he says he had longed to take Israel under his wings like a mother hen in protection of his children. But the result of their rejection is the physical destruction of Jerusalem, that this uh, protection will not be upon that generation. 
When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace. But now you have, they have been hidden from your eyes. They will not see them. For the day will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. God came to visit Israel in a special intervention to fulfill his covenant, and they rejected the fulfillment of his covenant. They refused it. Now, we have just witnessed Abraham and Sarah in the previous, uh, previous uh, episode in Genesis chapter 20, taking lightly this covenant from God, this covenant and the promise of a coming son, where they squandered it, as it were, by trading off the mother of this covenant, Sarah, as uh, during the time in which she is supposed to conceive this promised child. And so there is a threat or a danger here of Abraham and Sarah acting unfaithfully and not experiencing the joy of God's covenant. But thankfully, in this visitation that God has upon Sarah, we see and we take special note through these seven verses that both of them are faithful to God's covenant. What God had commanded for them to do, we see as the predominant theme in these verses. In fact, all of the joy and celebration that we might expect to see in the climax of these chapters in Genesis, we don't see. Though we can assume that Abraham was overjoyed, we have not one word about his joy, about his emotion, about his feelings. What we have instead is, and is a very specific uh, list of things that he was perfectly faithful to God about. This resulted in further growth for Abraham as he saw God's promise fulfilled. And then in the last two verses, we will see praise from Sarah, one who laughed at God's promise, who laughed that uh, thinking that God could not possibly do this. When she sees it fulfilled, we finally see Sarah growing in her maturity as well. And so we see maturity on both uh, of these uh, friends of God, Sarah and Abraham, because of God's fulfilled promise. And here in the rest of verse 1 and also in verse 2, we get special emphasis in the text on God's fulfillment of his words. It says, then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said. In the same way that he had said it, so he did it. The Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. The same thing that he promised, he also did. He was faithful to that promise. Remember back in Genesis 12, at the very beginning of God's promises to Abraham and Sarah. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. This is what God said that he would do for Abraham. And this, uh, to begin with, means that he must have descendants. He says, then I will bless you. Up until this point in Genesis chapter 12, every time blessing is used in Genesis, it has to do with reproduction. In Genesis 1, in Genesis 9, this blessing has to do with God's intervention into humanity to allow continued childbirth. 
and he will make Abram's name great. And remember, when he expands Abram's name to Abraham, it has particularly to do with his becoming the father of many nations. In Genesis 15:4, God uh, promises, he says, Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, this Eliezer of Damascus, who is not a child of Abraham, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. This amplified that promise of God in Genesis 12. It made it more specific. God is narrowing in on the exact means and manner by which he will fulfill this promise. In Genesis 17, 15, God said to Abram, Abraham, as for, you, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her, not by the means of any other. Remember in Genesis chapter 16, one chapter earlier, Sarai and Abram had plotted to have an heir come through Hagar instead of through Sarai. And God does not accept this child as an heir, and rightfully so. He says, then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Just as Abram in his own right becomes the father of nations, so Sarai in her own right becomes the mother of nations. Kings and peoples will come from her. And in, chapter, or in verse 19, God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. There is simply no getting around the specificity of God's promise. Abram and Sarai, despite their age and every year that the Lord delays, is one more year that God must show his power and his glory over creation in bringing a child from this union. He says, you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Not only is there the promise in here of a single descendant, but that descendants would also come from him. There is the three-generation promise here at least of reproduction and, uh, and God's intervention into the line of Abraham. And again, at the end of verse 2, we get once again emphasis on God's faithfulness to the specific uh, stipulations of his word. Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abram in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Exactly to the very uh, explicit expectations that we could have from God's stated word, this was fulfilled. At the time that all of these were promised, they were all prophecies. Every time that God spoke of a future event, God and God alone is able to know with this much specificity what will happen in the future. And notice that in every case, when these prophecies are fulfilled, they are fulfilled literally to the very letter. And when the promised son, Jesus Christ, was born into this world, every single promise concerning his first arrival was fulfilled literally, not figuratively, not spiritually, not allegorized, literally to the word, because God knows how to speak. God knows how to communicate. And he created people who could communicate with him when he gave them language. And so all of the prophecies as well concerning his second coming absolutely must be taken literally, and we can trust him in every word that he speaks. Genesis eighteen fourteen. remember, is anything too difficult for the Lord? 
It says, at the appointed time, I will return to you. At the time in which God ordained, at this time next year, Sarah will have a son. This was God's chosen time. It was not Abraham and Sarah's chosen time. They probably would have wanted this child in their youth, or at least at the moment that God had promised it. Sometimes being patient for the fulfillment of God's word is difficult for us, but it is not difficult for God. In fact, the long-awaited fulfillment of this promise demonstrates God's glory without any exception. Because at this point, everything about Sarah and Abraham should make it physically impossible for them to have children. But nothing is impossible with the Lord is anything too difficult for the Lord. And so finally, we do have this conception. Sarah not only conceived the child, but she also bore the son. This is very frequent in Hebrew scriptures, where the conception and the birth is seen as almost the same instance. Sometimes a child is spoken of as conceived. Sometimes a child is spoken of as born. Uh, But this all goes back to life at the time of conception. The moment that this child entered into the womb of Sarah, God's promise was fulfilled. And not only did he fulfill the promise that she would conceive a son, but he also fulfilled the promise that she would bear that son. And uh, in him, in that child, they would also have grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, and they would grow into a nation. This, as well, we see was a son born to Abraham in his old age and at the appointed time. Remember when Hagar had born a child, she bore this child to Abram. Now, in the English, this Abram is taken into the phrase rather than outside of the phrase. In both cases, it's an indirect object. That means it is to him as in for his benefit. Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him, or for his benefit, as belonging to him. Now Ishmael's name, remember, is God will hear. This will factor in a little later as we look at Sarah's response to the birth of her child. In Genesis 15, 1 through 3, remember God had told Abram, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you, and your reward shall be very great. God had made a promise to Abram. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? Abram recognized, not only in the culture of their day, but in the very nature of how God structured his creation with the divine institution of family, that Abram continues to live on through his children, just as all of us continue to live on through Adam. And when we are placed positionally in Christ, we begin to live on in Christ. And so Abram recognizes that his children and his descendants are able to receive this great reward from God. And a great reward from God is something naturally eternal by nature of who God is. And so Abram recognizes the magnitude of this promise that God has given him, but also recognizes that his line dies with him unless God also provides a seed. And so he says, the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. This isn't him asking God for approval for Eliezer to become his heir, but rather saying, this is not the same as having an heir. 
this is not the same as having a son because my possessions will go on to him, but I do not live on through him. What will you give to me since I am childless? Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, this one born in my house is my heir. Now, when this child was born, we see first Abram's, or Abraham's response to his birth. Abram called the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. This almost gets ridiculously redundant, but it all points towards God's faithfulness to the word. Not only did he bear a son, but it was born to him as a response to God's promise to him to provide an heir. And it was Sarah who bore it to him. And so Abram was faithful when he named his son Isaac, just as God had commanded him to do. Where Abram was unfaithful in the previous episode in Genesis 20, he has learned here the importance of God's covenant, and he is faithful to the letter. He names his son Isaac. In Genesis 17, 15, God had told Sarah and Abraham through Abram to name this child Isaac. God said to Abram, as for, your, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she will be the mother of nations. Kings and peoples will come from her. And Abram fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God, in response not only to Abram's laughter, but also Sarah's in chapter 18, commands that his name would be called Isaac. So God said, truly, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. God does not reject Ishmael from Abram's family, but he does reject him as the heir to this covenant. Ishmael does live before God, but not as the heir to God's promise to Abram. God makes different promises to Ishmael. He promises him um, blessing, prosperity, but not the land not God's presence with them. This was a unique promise to Abram through his descendants. So God says truly, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my, uh, my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. Isaac and Ishmael are both blessed through their father. But only Isaac is the fulfillment of God's promise of a son. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, God restates, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. And so first... Abram names his child Isaac. This would have been something he would do on the very day that he's born. And then eight days later, the child would be circumcised. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old 
as God had commanded him. Remember, in the first two verses, we see specifically God's fulfillment of his word to the T. Now we have here an echo in Abraham's obedience to God's word to the T. Just as God had told him, so he did. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 6, God says, I have made you exceedingly fruitful. Remember, this is in a perfect tense. God looks at the future fulfillment of this promise as already completed. He says, I have made you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you. And kings will come forth from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you through their generations for an everlasting covenant, a covenant that does not have an end, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. He promises them land, seed, and blessing, this unique promise to Israel. We benefit from their blessing promise. We even benefit from their seed promise, but not as a promise to us that we'll have eternal descendants, but that the eternal descendant of Israel will reign over the world. Genesis 17:9. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations, and this is my covenant you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you, that every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. The covenant that he's speaking of here is the covenant that he made with him in Genesis chapter 15. This promise of a land, a promise of a descendant to live in it, and God's promise of his presence and blessing in it with them. Here he is giving them a sign of this covenant, a sign that will be cut into their skin, the skin of all of those who are part of this covenant, the nation of Israel, for all of their generations afterwards, even today, so that they will never forget God's faithfulness and so that they will never forget God's specific promises of land, seed, and blessing because it still belongs to them. It will still be fulfilled to them. And even though the delay is thousands of years in this case, they can still be just as uh, sure of God's fulfillment as Abram and Sarai were in the 25-year delay of their promised son. In Genesis 17:12, then it says, Every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants, a servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money, shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Admission into the nation of Israel required circumcision. For one to become a part of that people and a part of that nation, even to dwell among them, required faithfulness to this covenant that God had given them so that they would remember that this nation is the nation who owns God's covenant. And so remember that God had said he would visit this nation. He would care for them and take care of them. 
And when we look into Exodus 4.22 once again, and we remember what uh, God's conversation here with Moses was, it says, then, shall, uh, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. God is remembering his firstborn son, Israel. And he is about to visit them and bring them out of the clutches of the world in Egypt. But as his firstborn son and the representative of them here, Moses, Moses has been unfaithful to God's covenant. The very covenant that God is remembering and bringing them out of Egypt. Because Moses had not circumcised his own children. His own children who were born in a foreign land, born in Egypt, but still were the possessor or the owners of this covenant with God. He was required to remember that from generation to generation to generation, and he himself was unfaithful to it. And so now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. God was about to kill his own representative, Moses, for unfaithfulness to this covenant, this covenant that God had remembered when he came to visit Israel to bring them out of Egypt. And God is coming once again. He came and visited his children uh, in the gospel period as well, and they did not recognize the time of their visitation. Well, they were still circumcising their children. Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. But they had added and amplified God's word so that it was no longer God's word. And the reason that they did not recognize the time of his arrival, the time of his visitation, was because they did not anymore recognize God's word. Instead, they recognized the traditions of the elders. They recognized the Pharisees' law. They recognized what was later codified in the Mishnah these unbiblical, ungodly words that were not part of God's covenant. And so they were unfaithful to God's word. They did not trust him as he had said, but rather took it upon themselves to change, to add, to alter, and to elevate that above God's word. Now we see the long delay in this promise. And we realize that this is not a delay because God is slothful, but a delay so that God might be glorified and so that they might not be confused at any point that it was God and God alone who stepped in to act. Abram was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Back in Genesis 12:4, when we first saw this promise, we see that Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. This is Genesis chapter 12, verse 4, right after this statement from God in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country. And the result of this promise, he says, he will make him a great nation, bless him and make his name great. But just because this verse comes after verses 12, one, or chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, does not mean it was the next thing that happened. In fact, what is remembered here in 12, 1 through 3 was the reason why Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees in the first place. Abram was 75 
when he left Haran, but not 75 when he left Ur. In fact, he was much younger. They went to uh, Haran and waited until his father died before leaving. Abram was a much younger man than 75 when they first left Ur of the Chaldees. Stephen in Acts 7 tells us, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. That's Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This is what God told him in Ur of the Chaldees. He went into Haran, not leaving his family, but bringing his family along with him. And God waited until he would separate from his father's household to bring him into the land where he brings him into Shechem and then down to Bethel and Ai. And then finally he separates from Lot and that's when God confirms the covenant to him in Genesis 15. He waits for Abram to be faithful to his commands and God is always faithful to his promises. Acts 7, 4. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give, to him, give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. And in verse 6, but God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land, speaking of Egypt, and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision the sign. So Abram became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. We see in Genesis 16, 16, Abram now living in the land of, or the promised land, in the land of Canaan, 13 years or 12 years after he entered it. Abram is now 86 years old, and this is when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Sarah and Abram thought God had delayed his promise or that thought God wanted or needed their help in order to have this happen. And this is still only halfway between their entering the land and God fulfilling this promise. They waited 12 years, and they wait another 12 before God visits them again and tells them within one year they'll have a child. And so 12 years, 13 years from when Ishmael is born, 25 years from entering the land, and who knows how long from the time that God first gave this command. In fact, they may have been young and thinking that God was going to bring about this child by natural means. Genesis 11.30 reminds us that Sarah was noted already to be barren. It was recognized that she could not bear children. There was something physically um, that did not allow her to do that, even before she reached the age where her age precluded her from having children. In Genesis 17, 21, 
God says, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. And two verses later, three verses later, we read Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Now we see that all the other slaves and servants that lived with Abram were circumcised on that very day. But Isaac is the very first one we ever see circumcised on day eight, just as God had commanded. This is truly the son of the covenant and the first one pointing toward the one who would come. Genesis 18, 9 through 11, he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. Behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abram and Sarah were old, advanced in age, and Sarah was past childbearing. Literally in the Hebrew, it says it had ceased to be with her the way of women. She no longer was able to produce children. She had gone through menopause. But Abram was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. The response of Sarah, we see more emotion in this one. Abram was surely, uh, surely praised the Lord, but we see his praise comes through obedience. His praise comes through doing what the Lord had told him to do. And this is just as much an act of worship. In fact, worship is the response to truth that we have. One response to truth is singing and praise. One response to, pr to truth might be prayer. Another response to truth might be obedience. And it depends on what that truth is, whether it requires uh, prayer, praise, or obedience. Here, Sarah was not told to do anything specifically. Abram had given, been given commands about what to do with the child when he was born. And so Abram's worship came in the response of obedience to, his, to the commands that God had given him. And Sarah's response of worship comes in praise and uh, simply befuddlement. Uh, this is a really catchy term, catchination. Uh, it just means laughter, but it means loud laughter, audible laughter. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. We see her incredulity turned into joy here. We see that she doesn't even focus here on the shame that she felt in Genesis 18, where we see her arguing with the Lord, saying, no, it wasn't me, I didn't laugh. Here she says, not only am I laughing, but everyone else is laughing with me now. This is a joyous occasion here. And it's an answer that we've looked for all throughout Genesis. When God created the earth and he created man and woman in fellowship with him in the Garden of Eden, there was joy and intimacy between them. And this was lost at the fall. In fact, in Genesis 3.15, in the very first promise of a coming seed, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between the serpent and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Both Eve and Adam take from this the promise of a redeeming child through human reproduction, 
one that would come along to restore the problem that occurred because of the fall. And then he says specifically to the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Not only will her pain be, uh, will, will she have pain in this childbirth, but she will have more childbirths as well. This compensating for death that has now entered into humanity. And this pain is not going to just be physical pain, but psychological pain as well. Eve, every child that she bears, bears now their fall, bears the same curse that came on them. Every child that is born now into the human race will never experience the joy and fellowship that they had with God before the fall. At the end of Genesis chapter 20, we see them uh, naked and without shame in the garden, in the face of God, having nothing to cover them, having nothing to hide them. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we see them not only divided amongst themselves, fellowship between the man and the woman broken because of sin, but fellowship between God and humanity broken because of sin. And then to the man, cursed is the ground because of you, and in toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. This is a very stark contrast with Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. The joyful, wonderful, perfect creation of God now marred by sin and longing for, looking forward to that seed promise who will restore what was lost. And Eve took this promise very literally, as she should. But in Genesis 4, we see that when she bore her first son, Cain, she thought that he was the answer to that seed promise. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child, a human child, who is the Lord. Now we know from Genesis chapter 4, the line of Cain, and Genesis chapter 5, the line of Seth, that all of these children are being born and all of them are dying. They're not able even to keep up with the curse. But Lamech, very near to the flood, lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest, the Hebrew word nua, from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord had cursed. Even ten generations from Adam, they are looking for that seed son who will give them rest from the curse who will restore that fellowship with God, who will restore the fruitfulness that was mankind's before the fall. And finally, we have a child here who God himself names and who names him Laughter. Interestingly, we also see Laughter prefiguring the Messiah. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 1, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Do you know what that vain thing is that the peoples are devising? A replacement for the Messiah. A false Messiah. One who comes by Satan's power and not by God's. This psalm looks forward to Armageddon. It looks forward to Satan putting up his man in response to God putting up his man. 
where God puts up Jesus Christ the Messiah, Satan puts up the false Messiah. This is the devising of the nations. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his chosen one, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Hebrew word Yishak. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God has put forward his firstborn son. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Isaac's name is not just the noun laughter. It is the verb, he will laugh in the future tense. Now, Sarah says something interesting here that may be nothing, but it seems that she is tipping her hat towards the child who is not the chosen heir. She said, God made laughter for me, Isaac for me, everyone who hears Ishma, minus only the, uh, the ending L, which means God, because Ishmael means God hears or God will hear. Here she says, everyone who will hear, the result instead will be laughter, will be Isaac with me. She seems to diminish here, Ishmael, and elevate the laughter, Isaac, the chosen son. In the next episode, this will make more sense because we see Ishmael, not named in that chapter, but Hagar and her son, hearing of this event and instead of laughing with them, ridiculing and jesting them. We're going to see Ishmael rejecting the promised descendant, the promised seed of the woman. He should be rejoicing in this. God has promises for Isaac and he has promises for Ishmael. Ishmael should not seek Isaac's promises from God, especially since God has promised that through this son, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Ishmael himself is promised to be the father of nations. And so in order for Ishmael to receive the blessings of, for his nations, he shouldn't seek to usurp Isaac, but instead to glorify God for having provided Isaac, because through Isaac, God will bring salvation to the world. Now, Sarah says yet one more interesting thing before she concludes. She said, who would have said to Abram that Sarah would nurse children? Now, the Hebrew here is very difficult to understand. I think this is a very good translation. But another way that someone has tried to translate it is, would that it had been told to Abram that Sarah would nurse sons. This is Victor Hamilton. He translate that, translates this as a subjunctive of hope or desire. In other words, Sarah, seeing God's faithfulness and ability to bring a child from a woman who is 90 years old and a man who is 100 years old, begins to wish that God had promised them more sons. 
wishes that God had said instead of that he would give a son, that he would give many sons to them. Now, I don't think this is the best way to resolve these issues in the text, but it highlights a point in here that Sarah says children in the plural, not children in the singular. She says, who would have said to Abram that Sarah would nurse children? What does she mean by this? One possible explanation is that this is what's called a gnomic plural, meaning a statement of general principle. The plural not meaning specifically plural children, but plural children meaning children at all. Who would have thought that Sarah would ever nurse children in any way, shape, or form? Not only was she too old at this point, but she was barren, even from her youth. And so it was completely beyond conception that Sarah would ever have a child to nurse. However, a better possibility or a better reason for this is because now Sarah has seen God's faithfulness. She also trusts him not just for the immediate fulfillment, but the fulfillment that is promised through time as well. When she looks at this one child that God has given her, she sees in him the fulfillment of all of God's promises now. Because God has been faithful to her and he has demonstrated it in a way that she cannot deny, one that has brought her great joy. And so she recalls the promises of God and realizes that God's promises do not stop with the child that's in her hands, but the promise of exceeding fruitfulness throughout these generations. God has promised that Abram would be the father of nations and that Sarah herself would be the mother of nations. And so just as we see Levi having tithed to Melchizedek through his father Abram, we also see Sarah nursing all of the children of Israel because they are already in existence in God's prophecy and also in this nation that has been born in Isaac. Through Isaac, who is, who, in whose loins are the entire nation of Israel, Sarah actually becomes the mother of all of Israel, just as Abram is the father of all of Israel, just as Eve and Adam are the parents of the entire race of humanity. So they are the parents of the entire nation of Israel. And so her final statement, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now, there are a few correspondences between this foreshadow or prefigurement of the ultimate fulfillment of the seed promise that are worth noting. In considering Isaac and Jesus, we note that both the birth of Isaac and of Jesus were promised in advance. Neither of these pregnancies were a surprise. In fact, God himself visited in order to tell them of this birth. Both included a delay between the promise and the fulfillment. The promise uh, for Isaac was delayed by only a few years comparatively. The promise for the son, the ultimate seed son, was delayed by thousands of years. Eve expected him in her firstborn son. Lamech expected him in his son. Here we see the fulfillment of Jesus Christ as the promise from the very beginning. Of, uh, of the world. Both announcements appear incredible to the mother. 
Now, Sarah and Mary have different responses, but both in the difficulty of believing this promise. Sarah at first does not believe it. Mary, despite the difficulty in believing it, does believe it. So this difference in the mother does not change the fact that both of these announcements are incredible. For Sarah, because of her barrenness and because of her old age, because she had already gone through menopause, Mary, because she had never been with a man. Mary, because the fulfillment of this promise would come without the aid of a man, but that God himself would overshadow her and she would conceive a son. Both were named by God ahead of their births. Now, this is actually far more rare in Scripture than you might think. In fact, Isaac, Ishmael, and Jesus are the only ones that we see, and John the Baptist are the only ones that we see named ahead of time by God in Scripture. Both births occurred at God's appointed time, exactly in his time in history, not just the local history of uh, the characters, Abram and Sarah, but in the exact time in the entire history of the world in which he needed these children born. Isaac, the, the uh, fulfillment of the nation of Israel, right after the nations were divided in Babel. God brings this unique nation onto the scene, one that he would be able to bring the unique Savior from. And then many times we're told about Jesus that he arrived on the scene at exactly the time that God had planned. In fact, even in the uh, 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel, we see that God had planned to the day the arrival of his son, the visitation on Israel. Both births were by God's miraculous intervention. God stepped in and gave life to a dead womb in Sarah. And God stepped in and gave life to a woman without a man in the Gospels. Both births resulted in their mothers praising God. We just read Sarah's praise. In the Gospels, we have what's called the Magnificat, where Mary recognizes God's unique blessing on her and the unique blessing on Israel in this promised son. Both sons were a particular joy to their fathers. Isaac to his father Abraham, Jesus to his father, our God the Father. In fact, God says this at least on two occasions audibly from heaven. The only things we hear him speaking out of heaven during Christ's time on earth is this is my son in whom I am well pleased. In Matthew chapter 14 and as well in Matthew chapter 17, and in Matthew chapter 17 he adds the phrase to it, uh, uh, you shall do what he says. Finally, both sons were faithful to their fathers, even to the point of death. Now, we know this of Christ, that he was faithful to the cross. And we know this of Isaac, though we haven't come across it yet in the text. But in just one chapter, we will see that God will demand of Abraham now to sacrifice this promised seed. Not only has he trusted in God now to the point where this child has been born, but he now will need to trust in God's promises even over life and death. 
even trusting and believing that God has power over life and death. In conclusion, this morning, we'll look back at our main point. At long last, the promised seed is born. This is not the ultimate fulfillment, but the near fulfillment of the seed prophecy in Genesis 3. Isaac was the result of God's intervention and miraculous conception of a child, through which he created Israel out of nothing as his firstborn son. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this promise when he stands for Israel as God's firstborn or unique son. And Isaac prefigures Jesus as the firstborn son who brings joy. Let's end with a word of prayer. Dear Father, we thank you so much. And as we look at your promises, we gain confidence in your word. We gain confidence in all that you have promised to us. Promise of life in Jesus the Messiah. We know that this is your testimony to us and we trust it not because we feel saved, not because we feel an emotion, but because your word is trustworthy. And our response to that will always be praise. And so we do praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.